You're listening to the McKinsey Podcast, featuring wide-ranging conversations on the issues that matter in business and management. Hello and welcome to this edition of the McKinsey Podcast. I'm Cecilia Mazeka, an editor with McKinsey Publishing based in Singapore. Organizations have more data than ever at their disposal, but actually deriving meaningful insights from that data and converting knowledge into action is easier said than done. Today we're talking to Nimal Manuel, partner in McKinsey's location in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. Also joining us is Bill Wiseman, a partner normally based in Taipei, but joins us today in our KL location. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. What is the potential of data and analytics to transform how companies organize, operate, manage talent, create value? Words that we hear all the time, but what's the real potential? When you just look at some basic statistics, like the fact that half of the world's data was created in just in the last 10 months, so meaning half of the world's data for in the history of mankind was created in less than the last year, um, you think about it, it's just truly shocking. The pace of change that we're seeing is completely radical. I serve primarily industrial companies, and the way that I see companies taking, uh, taking action and using that data really is to drive another wave of productivity. So you had the wave of lean, you had the wave of outsourcing, and now we're seeing a wave of productivity driven by data and analytics, uh, enabling them to refine the way that people work together, the way their processes perform, the way assets are productive. So if you think about an oil well, for example, um, you've got over 300 sensors down hole that are spewing out data at the rate of about a gigabit a second in some cases. So what's the potential, Nimal? Well, I just want to build on what Bill said, um, because there's two important steps here. There's a lot of data being generated. A, not all of it is being captured, and then B, what's captured, a fraction is being used. Cost of storage has gone down, so I see many of my clients you know, storing more and more data but still struggling with how to best harness this data. So now at least we've got more and more of the relevant data to be used. Bill serves a lot of the B2B industrial type companies. I serve more of the B2C, the consumer-oriented uh, companies, uh, mostly in emerging markets. There's an increasing awareness that to compete and to be sustainable, they've got to go beyond gut instinct for doing business. It's got to be data-driven, it's got to be analytics-oriented, and that's how you know, business decisions have got to be made, both on the commercial side as well as the operation side. The interesting thing is we start to see more and more use cases and applications of this data, but it's nowhere near at scale. And why is that? What are the challenges that organizations face in adopting analytics, Bill? The biggest thing I've seen actually has nothing to do with data science or mathematics or, or data storage. It has to do with legal and governance frameworks. So. Most of the clients I work with are multinational. They're dealing with different legal uh, domains across countries. They're dealing with different issues of consumer protection, different levels of employee protection, and just having a legal framework around what data they can use and what they can't and how they can process it and what they're allowed to do with it. It's a massive challenge. And so just getting your head around the legality of what you're allowed to do with the data that you have, what consumers are allowing you to do with it, what your employees are allowing you to do with it, Generally, when you're signing someone up for a subscription service or when you're, when you're, when you're collecting subscriber information or, or customer information, um, there is a, there's an implicit or even an explicit promise of trust that that, that information is going to be secure and you're going to do with it only what you need to do with it. And so uh, you hear a lot of times from companies, oh, we anonymize everything and we, that still gives some people, get, gets people a little bit scared and uh, they, they, they have an inclination to protect 
some information from you. Employees is even more explicit. So if you go to some of the Scandinavian countries uh, or, or some of the some more mature European countries, um, you have a lot of works councils and labor unions, and the whole idea of being able to use uh, you know communication information. Um, who, when are you badging in and out of work? What, what files are you collaborating with, co with colleagues on? Being able to use that information somehow to manage performance and potentially even establish uh, you know, performance management paradigms, uh, that, that's not allowed by a lot, of, a lot of the unions. And so just getting people comfortable with, here's how we're using this information and explaining that to them, it, it, it takes a lot of overhead and a lot of time to, to get that right. The other angle on this is more the regulatory angle. Uh, and here, there's, there's, there's the onus on, on, on policy makers to kind of make it clear in terms of where, 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 where those boundaries are. In many markets, uh, there are increasingly uh, data protection laws mm. and confidentiality laws, mm -hmm. and this is appropriate. In not in all countries is it clear. <laughs> so companies, especially MNCs, struggle with kind of where, where's the white versus where's the gray. Are there organizational barriers, Bill? Let me take a step back. One of, the, one of the terms that you hear used in, in, uh, in advanced analytics is the concept of a data lake. A data and lake. A data lake. And what that basically means is pulling data out from all the siloed systems across an enterprise, gotcha. pulling it and linking it all together so that you can, you can look at that in any one of you know, 50 or 100 dimensions um, and enables you to find massive amounts of insight because none of this data has really been linked before. Um, that comes with political cost a lot of times for business units because uh, it, you know, if you think about five executives all vying for the next CEO job, they all want to retain um, as much of their own personal capital as they can to be able to succeed. And so um, sharing what they would perceive as, as very proprietary information with, with some of their so-called competitors, which are obviously business units in the same organization, uh, why would they want to do that? I'd, I'd much rather retain um, control of my own information uh, for my own benefit. Um, you also run into challenges of data spillage. So, hey, I, I have this data on my customers. If I put it in the lake and the IT system you know, leaks that out somehow, it's no longer on my control. Uh, that creates a, bunch, a, a new category of risk that uh, executives never really wanted to face before. So I would say, sure, there's organizational barriers. We're going to have to get over that. Do you agree with that? You really have to put in the right incentives to encourage silos to create this data lake and, and make it operational. Data and proprietary data is power. And uh, you need to find ways to motivate and incentivize people to share that. Uh, because it's often not in the interest of any particular executive to do so. Now, that's one dimension. There's another very interesting organizational dimension, which is how you then decide what to do with the data. If you think about it, any organization, you could conceive of 50 or 100 different use cases I say use cases, I mean ways to apply mm. this data in a way that's beneficial to the organization. It could vary from commercial type use cases like you know, uh, upsell, cross-sell, retention, migration, uh, to more operational ones like call center optimization or you know, asset optimization. There's multiple different use cases that are relevant to an organization. Another aspect of organization, and maybe this is more governance within the organization, is ensuring this clarity of focus in where the data and analytics are going to be purposed towards. So I've seen clients implement this in, in a couple of different ways. So one way is to start with the plumbing. Um, and you, you want to you know, 
look at this from an IT perspective. Let's get the plumbing in place as best we can. Let's create a, a central team that is supposed to mine that for insights and, and be able to publish that out to the businesses. Um, that approach tends to not work very well. We would call that kind of an IT-led approach because uh, you, you've got a bunch of people that are looking at a bunch of data and maybe coming up with insights that aren't that interesting or aren't that believable and trying to sell those into a business and convince the business to take advantage of those is, is sometimes a very hard sell. The alternative way of doing this is being business-led, which is going to, a, going to a business leader and saying, hey, I'd like, to, I'd like you to you know, pilot some ideas of using uh, advanced analytics to drive your business and letting a business executive shape how they want to deploy that, how they want to, what, what kind of insights they want to go and pull out and use. Um, that kind of business-led approach does tend to uh, be more effective, at least in the experience that I have. Nimmo, is that no, in fully line agree. with your, no, fully uh, agree. your experience? And I think, I mean, let's take a commercial example, right? Uh, it needs to be business-led by the CMO or the CMO equivalent in terms of directing it. But then again, he needs the CIO to be working with him. And so I call this a marriage of the CMO and the CIO. It needs to be, in, for a commercial use case, it needs to be CMO-led, business-led, in terms of directing where the value is and here's what I want done. But then working hand-in-hand hand with the CIO in terms of what then needs to be put in place in terms of the, uh, you know, what data I need in the data lake, ingested into the data lake. What analytics I need applied to that data what IT stack can need to be upgraded to automate a lot of this, all anchored on the business priority put forth by the BU head of the CMO. It sounds to me like there are connections to the talent question. How do you look at the issue of talent in making analytics work for companies? Talent issues are, uh, are myriad. So um, if you think of the roles, that, the new roles that this, these opportunities create, um, you've got the plumbers. Uh, of, of the data lake. So we, I like to call these people data engineers. These are the folks that are, are, are breaking data out of those silos, uh, putting it in the lake and making sure that they've got real-time feeds set up so that uh, this can be kept uh, fresh over time. Is there a shortage of, of people with that expertise? Um, there's a shortage of good ones, uh, mm -hmm. that's for sure. And I, I think that shortage uh, depends on where you're looking. So uh, if you're looking in, uh, in a place like the United States or somewhere in Europe, huge shortage of these. Uh, I would say there are great talent sources. Um, uh, India is a great source of talent for, for data engineers. So it's, it's all a question of um, you know, uh, global mobility, I think, is a, is a big deal. Um, the second role that, that uh, people always point to is the role of the data scientists. So these are the mathematicians who uh, understand how to do uh, complex algorithmic and model building um, tasks and can actually make something out of that data, either a, a descriptive model or a prescriptive model or a predictive model. Um, coming off uh, the data that we have. And then probably the, I would say the least appreciated, but probably in some cases the most rare and most important individual um, is the person that links the business domain with the data science. Mm -hmm. um, understanding what's, what, what is in the realm of the possible, what can be digested by the business, and frankly, how to close the last mile between the insight that the data scientist is coming up with and the predictions they're making and how to go out and drive business impact with that. That is uh, that's a very the rare quest. individual. Yeah, I mean in McKinsey we call those the translators. Mm. The folks that can bridge between the technical and the business. So people who can roll up their sleeves and can you know understand the statistics, can code in R or SAS on the one hand, but yet have a sufficient business savviness to be able to then apply that to a business issue as opposed to getting lost in the, uh, the technical beauty of the solution, so to say. Uh, that's very hard to find. 
you either find folks who you know talk a good talk on the business side but can't move up the sleeves, or folks who are a bit too immersed in it and can't uh, elevate themselves and look at the business challenges. You can find the pure technical data scientists. I mean, it's not easy, but you can find them. Finding these translators, uh, this is the biggest challenge. So we've talked about a host of challenges. What is then the business case uh, or the best case scenario? Have you seen any good examples of some impact stories that you may have seen? So take pricing. Um, how do I set pricing in an effective segmented fashion, both for what we call above the line, uh, meaning you know pricing that everyone sees, mm. uh, mass kind of pricing, mm -hmm. as well as for more targeted segmented pricing. As you can imagine, um, there's a ton of value to being able to deploy analytics to understand different segments of consumers, their willingness to play, pay, mm -hmm. what extent of that surplus companies are leaving on the table today, and how you can price in a more segmented fashion to capture all that excess surplus. I mean, that's on the one hand, the, it's very simplistic saying it that way, but the amount of uh, analytics that go into understanding the elasticities of individual segments that's quite a lot. It takes quite mm. a lot of work. Now, many organizations get it wrong and lose a lot of value through pricing. So it's a low-hanging fruit in the sense that it's a very strong and easy level to pull, but uh, it's, it's, it's challenging to get right, and analytics can really help inform that decision. What about you? Where have you seen analytics really work and take off for, for companies? So I've seen it in a few cases. So to stick on this commercial theme for a little bit, um, I think one of my favorite applications that I've seen uh, is a large, um, large complex sales transactions. So if you think about, uh, you know, let, let, let's think about a, a commodity space like, uh, like chemicals. Um, a lot of times you get large account teams that have an account manager, many technical sales reps, and, and maybe some technical support reps um, that are there to service a particular account and you know, might have thousands of customers uh, that, that, that a company's trying to service. Um, being able to figure out what good looks like from an account servicing capability is very interesting. So um, the, the, the problem was framed uh, as, hey, I have hundreds of technical sales reps. I don't know what my return on those technical sales reps really are. Would it make a difference if we didn't have any? Would it make a difference if we doubled the number of them? Mm. And so going in and being able to use account-by-account uh, account analytics and figure out you know, which account managers leverage technical sales reps, how do they do that? Uh, being able to unpack that and get down to the level of account-by-account, account, what is the impact that a technical sales rep is having? And on average, how big is that? It allows companies to figure out, do we have the right level of technical support staff. Do we do we you know do we need to double that? Do we need to have it? What kind of return are we going to get on that? And mm -hmm. so dialing that back, you know, in, in this particular case, I would say we had two outcomes. So one was educating the account managers that were not making adequate use of technical resources was a big lift. So these were account managers that just didn't see the value in that or didn't know how to use them. And so being able to retrain those folks to effectively use technical uh, sales resources was a good thing. And then we recognized that we had about half as many as we needed. So we needed to scale oh. up the, the total number of, of technical sales uh, resources that we had. Uh, it was very interesting because the ingoing hypothesis was these people really don't add a lot of value. Um, we might want to just get rid of them. And that was totally the opposite of the outcome. Wow. Um, I think another, uh, another thing that I, uh, another counterintuitive insight that I saw some clients get to um, was we were looking at 
large engineering forces. And a lot of times in a product development uh, organization that's churning out hundreds of products a year, um, engineers are staffed in pools. So you have a pool of software engineers, a pool of mechanical engineers, a pool of electrical engineers. And if you're going to design a product, you pull a, a, a team of engineers together and that's who is assigned to that project team. And it's always a question of, do I dedicate resources to a project? Do I fragment them across a certain number of projects? And oftentimes that's not managed. And so you get an engineering chest thumping culture where uh, a software engineer wants to be on seven different projects or an electrical engineer says, no, I really want to focus and shut my door and get work done. And by going through and mining years of real experiential um, projects, you can get down to uh, answer the question of what is the right level of fragmentation that you want in your engineering workforce. And it's quite interesting that you find by domain it's very different. Uh, you would think it's different by individual, but in reality it's not. So uh, we found at one company, and this probably is not something you could extrapolate, uh, but we did not find the limit to which you could fragment software engineers. We got up to, you know, we got up to 12 projects. We were fragmenting software engineers on a given week across 12 different projects, and their productivity was continuing to increase. Wow. And, uh, but we, we, we never did find that limit. Hmm. Uh, we found the limit with mechanical engineers, the limit was two projects. If you scan them across more than two, uh, their productivity started to drop. And so this was very counterintuitive, and it, and it led to uh, building almost uh, a smart staffing tool that when you're dealing with a 7,000 person pool, we're able to much more intelligently uh, deploy resources across projects. And that led to um, massive lifts in productivity, able to get products out in 20% less time or with 20% less engineering hours of input. That leads to either you know, better product velocity output, which leads to better pricing, or it leads to uh, you know, a better cost position. So I, I think the impact is, is definitely there where you're talking about top line growth or, or you're talking about uh, cost to develop. One of the things Bill said just now was uh, focus on the business, not the technology. That's critical. So for me, the first thing is creating alignment within the organization of where the business value is. What are the two, three, four, five use cases I'm going to prioritize? That's so important because that then allows the whole organization to engineer the analytics engine behind those four to five uh, or three to four uh, use cases, those three to four priorities. That's very important. Number two, Bill and me were talking just now about this concept of, uh, you know, how do you architect the big data or the analytics journey? And again, you've got to be pragmatic about this because you need momentum up front, which means you need a few quick wins. So you don't want to be in a position where you're trying to pull together a big data scientist team or big IT infrastructure and then, you know, two years down the road start thinking what to do with it. You want to be in a scenario where um, you use what's available. You beg, borrow, steal, get some early wins. Uh, once everyone's a bit more convinced that you know, there's value here, then you make the bigger investments and scale up and automate and all that good stuff. But, but get a few runs uh, early in the game. I think that's completely right. Um, I think the only thing that I would add to, to build on what Nimble said is, is getting that, getting that couple, a couple of use cases right where you're driving, you know, business leaders in your organization can see the impact. It's going to generate a lot of pool. The other thing I like to, I like to ha see CEOs and, and uh, doing with their top teams is really drawing inspiration from something that's new and a bit farther away from their business so they can, they can again, see what is truly possible out there. Um, not looking from necessarily, you, you, you can look from, you know, from business, but I wouldn't limit yourself just to business. Um, I would look at sports. Um, it, you know, Moneyball was a fantastic story 
of reshaping the game of baseball uh, using analytics to bring down the cost of developing teams. If you look at Formula One sports racing, if you, if you look at, um, at basketball or Premier League soccer, these are very data-driven businesses uh, now, whether you're talking about athlete injury prediction, um, you're seeing teams that are actually saying, I, I believe this athlete is going to be injured in the next two weeks because uh, he's not showing the right level of strength and flexibility, I'm gonna bench him because that athlete is a multi-million dollar investment and if he gets hurt, he can't play anymore. Um, I would look at uh, security applications. Um, some of the way that, uh, that intelligence organizations are being able to isolate and hunt for terrorists is, is very interesting when it comes to applications of fraud detection, et cetera. Um, so I would say having executives look to uh, analogous areas where uh, I would say the use of analytics and the use of big data is light years ahead of where it is in business uh, really is a great source to draw inspiration uh, and figure out what that roadmap looks like. So getting the quick wins to build some, uh, to build a business case for the teams, but then really, you know, being inspired by what's what, what's possible out there. Well, thank you for speaking to us today and sharing your insights, and thank you for listening to our conversation. If you'd like to find out more about our research on data and analytics, head over to McKinsey.com. You've been listening to the McKinsey podcast. To learn more about McKinsey, our people, and our latest thinking. Visit us at mckinsey.com or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook.